Fire started. Getting tabled. Getting tabled. Getting tabled. Getting tabled. Getting tabled. Getting tabled. With the Bruce, the Yang, and Captain Socks. Hello, future people, and welcome to a very, very special edition of Getting Tabled with your host, the Bruce. Hi, folks. And then there's also the that major socks guy somewhere. I don't know where the things are at. And then if you'll notice on the video, there's a fourth video. We have a we Nigel. Have, oh, yeah, we have a Nigel. Yeah. It's been a while since we've had a Nigel on. <laughs> and I was like, no, what? The show. Right. You've really... Co- the Nigel comments really throw me. Yeah, but thanks it's for a the top gear. Guy. It's a Top I Gear reference. Point out now that it is actually 1 a.m. in the morning, yeah, over in the UK. So if I'm a little yeah. bit slow on my comments, yeah, I've had my daughter <laughs> running me ragged all day. Yeah, so, okay, explain the Nigel, because that's just confused me. So, so in slang terms, so in the UK, they commonly refer to Americans as Yanks. I'm a Yank because... Yeah. And then he's a Bruce because, and then on the reverse, people in Australia call UK people Nigels. Right. It's the first time I've ever heard that. Oh, I quite it was like the third that. on. Um, it's a very British name. Yes. Yeah, that's where it comes from. <laughs> it comes from, top, well, I know it from Top Gear, but the joke's older than that. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's what I know from too, but in our previous podcast, we had a gentleman who, his actual name was Nigel. So we didn't have to call him Nigel. He was just already Nigel. It just worked. <laughs> it worked. I must admit, with not knowing that one, you definitely threw me a curveball because I've got a blank screen at the side that I think's the recording bot. And I'm sitting here thinking, have we got a Nigel who's about to pop up as well? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the, I'm looking at Discord, like looking at the logged in you just going, I don't see no Nigel. Are they talking to me? I had wondered why you looked so confused there for a minute. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Oh dear. So for for any of the three or four people in the world that don't know who Mel is, do you want to explain why most of us know you? Uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, basically because I share my passion for terrain making on YouTube. And somehow I've done it all my life and I just share tips and stuff and... A lot of people thought it'd be useful to follow. Now, to be truthful, I don't know whether they follow me for the tips or for the accidents. Yeah, whether it's like <laughs> educational or comic relief. But either way, you know, I'm just glad to have people along and, you know, see terrain building grow in the hobby. Yeah. And I think there's the fact that there's so many of those channels out there is not accidental anymore either. You, you yeah. were, I mean, you certainly weren't the first, but you were one of, you were among the first that were no, using the platform in that way. Answer. You know, I mean, Terranscapes, Terrainaholic, you know, uh, Rubbish In, Rubbish Out. They were going nine yep. years before I came along. Uh, when I came along, uh, I think I think Mike at Terranscapes, yeah, he'd got up to about, about 17,000 subscribers and he'd been doing it for about nine years. You know, so when I came to do Terrain on YouTube, it was very much, I'm just sharing my hobby. There was no expectations of... You know, hey, this guy's amazing and it's taken him nine years to get 17,000 subscribers. And then everything just went batshit crazy. Yeah, and it all yeah. kind of happened. Um, I remember it being very small. I was like, oh, this is lots of fun. And then all of a sudden there's just a floodgate of people that is paying attention. I think it, it came at the right time for people. 
Mm. I think, I mean, my, my, my premise with the, with the channel, yeah, one, it, there was my personal reasons for doing it health-wise, mental health-wise, and the motivation to do something. But the underlying reason was very much this sort of feeling like terrain making was disappearing from the hobby. I mean, every photo of a convention I saw, it was flat plastic land with GW buildings on as far as the eyes could see. Yeah. You know, and it was like, I'm seeing the same. And even with the creation of MDF kits, you know, yep. it's like, hey, it's, you know, it's still flat. No one's come up with an MDF hill yet, you know. And so it was very much like I grew up, you know, uh, hobbying. You know, I grew up in a craft shop in a corner. And so making my own terrain was just, that's what you do. And seeing it gone, it was like, I want to share this. I want to share the, what I do, this sort of thing. And I think it came along just at the right time where people were looking to tap into something a little bit more than just painting their models. Yeah. And terrain making's got an element of that. It's very therapeutic. Yeah. It's very, you know what I mean? Uh, it's just good for the soul, I think. And I think also the fact that you can do it with kids. Yeah, yeah. the payoff, you know, for enriching your games as well when you do make your own terrain. There's nothing like and playing you, on the gaming table you've made. Yeah, yeah, that's the. Th it ends up being like this is. It's not just something I've painted. This is mine. I made this. Exactly, exactly. And when it starts rolling, and you start imagining the lands you're going to build, or the, you know, you start thinking about the battles and the landscapes you can battle over, because eventually you start building terrain for games you want to make play. I mean. Any terrain maker is sitting there going, at some point I'm going to make a castle or I'm going to make fortified, you know, 40k city gate walls, you know, the, the Forge World style. Yeah, because we all want to play that game. I mean, yeah. Lord of the Rings guys. Yeah, I salivate every time I see a photo of Helm's Deep and there's a, something in my mind. You are going to make one of those at some point. Yeah, I don't even know how to play the game. <sighs> But I want to make yeah. it so that I've got a mate, Rob Alderman. He, he works at GW, project manager for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I'm literally thinking, I'll make the castle and I'm just going to get Rob. I'm just going to take it down to Rob. And Rob, get some minis and teach me how to play, mate. Because I just <laughs> want to play a game on this, you know, just yeah. once. You know, which is pretty typical for my builds. I only usually get to play on them once. Do you keep a lot of your stuff? No, do you, like, no, do you I, still have a lot of it? No, anything big and posh is going off to someone else. You know, uh, I tend, there's two sorts of terrain I make. Yeah, I make uh, tutorial pieces where it's very much like I'm building this purely because I want to show you how to build it or I want to show you this technique or, you know, we're experimenting with something. Or I do sort of my feature builds, which are like the D-Day board, the Frostgrave board, the map and all those sort of things. And they're generally for companies. And the reason being is that obviously uh, the stuff for companies is a commission. And what yes, they yes. pay in the commission sort of bumps up and makes it viable for me to go, right, I can use this to teach this, 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 this. So at the same time I was making the Frostgrave board, uh, the High Peak Pass tile for foreground, yeah, when I started that, I started off with a list of what snow tutorials do I want to pull out of this build? Yeah, so I'm filming two sets of video content at the same time. Yeah, one vlogging, which is just going out week by week. And then over the course of about six weeks, I'm also filming about five different tutorials that only came out at the end, which is, hey, this is frosting buildings up. This is icicles. This is how to do snowy ground. This is how to do ice ground. These are the effects for getting frozen puddles. 
yeah and we did a whole load of those and so yeah. my builds sort of vary but the really posh stuff is always for someone else and typically i'm late with it which means i don't get much gaming time on it yeah it's literally like i have to get like i'm having one game before the, my studio you know what i mean and then after that it's like i walk around conventions watching people play on my tables like oh, i should have had more games on that <laughs> you know what speaking, i mean you know speaking of tables uh do you have a preference on, on making stuff like you know are you more into making the table or like you know the display board to really showcase you know the game or the army or, or whatever it depends on what the purpose of the terrain is, okay? A good table for gaming on, yeah, can be different for whether you game at home or whether you game at a club or whether you game at a store. A good table for demonstrating a game is vastly different because you want something that really gives a, a feeling of the environment, yeah, limited in size, forcing players to get close to each other rather quickly, speeding up demo games, yeah, you want to design them so you can have access for people to playing, but also people looking over their shoulder. Yeah. So just purely from playing a game to demoing it. Yeah. There's actually a difference because demoing isn't just about, hey, I'm going to show you this game. It's about selling the game. Yeah. Which means the yeah. whole package. Yeah. Which is why you have show tables and you have gaming tables. Yeah. Yeah. Say, I mean, the, what you can pull off with your own terrain at home and what you'll put in a store is vastly different. You know, you'll go for more delicate stuff at home because, you know, the people who are playing on it are going to going to treat it well. I, I, will go for delicate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> so, terrain is, is, is essentially the table. It's there to enable the gameplay. Yeah. So it, the, the best terrain comes from understanding what you're trying to achieve with it, you know. If you want club terrain, then you want something simple that people fingers are, you know, you're not going to get fiddly or have any arguments over. Clear boundary, clear line of sights. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not going to break your heart when something breaks. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, also use simple colors that you can get from the local DIY store. Don't use specialist yeah. materials so the club can do the repairs and you can have a club night and everything's simple. So everyone goes, yeah, I can do this. And after they spent a year knackering your terrain, you go, all right, Christmas coming. Bring your, your, your tester pots in. We're having a terrain building night. Bring your beer. We've got to fix the terrain up for next year. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas your stuff at home, it's like, yeah, I can use this this one specific model paint on this one thing because I'm going to be able to get this again. And you know what I mean? I can use the rare stuff and I can tailor it and it's not going to get broken. So it's understood. Terrain is there to enable the game. Really understanding what you're using it for, where you're using it, yeah, uh, is the best way to get the best out of the terrain. And that's what applies to the channel. You know, I know when I'm doing a feature build, all right, I'm going to do this posh. This is going to look real snazzy. Because I know what I'm doing as the terrain tutor is, all right, if I'm spending two months on this, I want to walk away with something that, you know, in a year's time, people go, yeah, that's the terrain tutor's build, yeah. yeah? Whereas my teaching pieces... Half of them, I don't even paint the backside you can't see. <laughs> well, it's no point if it's not going to ever get begun. If it's ever going to be used. My teaching pieces, because they're individual pieces, they're never part of a set. So yeah, if, I, yeah. If, yeah, I, if, I, if I teach it fences, I'll, I'll do a video and I'll do three, four different types of fences. Yeah. But I've only got one fence of each sort. So if you want to lay that on a table game, you're a bit out of luck, mate. Yeah, yeah, so my, my teaching pieces go from teaching pieces to testing pieces. 
Yeah, and I have a shelf full of them where the frugal crafter in me, where it's like, I need some clump foliage for this. I'll just take it off this one. No one will know. No one will know. And I'm re-gluing them on. So when you watch my tutorial piece in the clump foliage, that cl- my, the frugal nature of my crafting, yeah, that clump foliage has been recycled. You've probably seen those clumps over about three or four different... So, uh, nice. I'll, I'll share this with you too, Mel. I'm a big proponent of if you don't see it, don't paint it. Yeah. I'll agree on that. Within uh, reason. But no, I'll agree with that. Which is kind of rare, because I always have to paint my Space Marine legs in, in land speeders. I cannot leave them bare. When it's a model, even if you can't see it, I still have to paint it. Oh, no, yeah. you, even on my models. Um, I, I don't know how many times uh, the, the guys here have hassled me about painting the undersides of my ships for drop fleet. Like, why? You can't see them. <laughs> all the time. And every, every single little dot. Come on, George. All the dots. No, I will not do all those dots. <laughs> I'm going to argue with myself now, just to annoy George. Yes, you have to paint the dots. <laughs> no, I, I completely get why he doesn't do it. The reason we push you to do that is to annoy you, not because we expect that you're going to do it. Yeah. Again, with the friendly bantering that we have throughout our, our, our craft. Oh, well, I'm well at home here, mate. Well at home. So, like so me and my kids. you kind of touched on this already, So, but, but I was just kind of curious. So you're talking about you know table after table just covered with the you know, G-Dub plastic, and then the the impl- the 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 coming about of you know with the, the MDF terrain. Of those two, which do you prefer? Like, do you like the just the great detail that you can get out of the box of the plastic, or the hobby aspect of you're building the terrain and then you can make the still make the terrain kind of yours with the MDF? Oh, I'm a hobby slut. I love all of it. <laughs> i mean literally just throw me in the middle of all of it and i'll have a great time at the end of the day it's horses for courses okay now with 40k terrain yeah i certainly do it okay <laughs> and it's great it's high detailed you know mdf terrain is great yeah the problem is it tends to be slightly flat okay so it really depends on what you need and in what environment yeah, so I'm quite happy using plastic. I'm quite happy using uh, MDF. I, I'm quite happy using cardstock. It's about understanding, right, What's the? why am I using this? So the 40K stuff, yeah, clearly I want to do a, an Admex City. Yeah, uh, you, you can't pull that off with MDF. Okay, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. whereas uh, for my big Burma build... Yeah, I've got some foreground jungle huts because they're flat, they're quick to easy, they're painted, they're detailed. I can get them together really nice and I can throw them onto a build and highlight them up much like I'll do with the plastic stuff. Yeah. And when you're trying to represent like Pacific huts, it's you would expect them to be flat-ish because that's they're simple, exactly, simple exactly. to build. That's the whole point. Yeah, Exactly. In sci-fi, yeah. you would expect to be what you got. I mean, when you get flat sci-fi it's the less believable yeah even if it is plastic kits yeah you know, we we like our detail and that sort of stuff and so there's, there's sort of a genre yeah that's subtle in 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 the hobby where of what what's acceptable so for example uh if you were to make a townhouse yeah a medieval townhouse out of foam board and balsa wood it wouldn't be that different from an mdf kit no yeah? no that's and true. it wouldn't no. take much detail to get it up at the same time, yeah, if you go to the, the sort of watch 40k element, if you make a foam board bunker, it looks sort of flat. 
yeah in 40k you start adding the the, the bottle tops the bits the scraps the bits of plastic the, the offcuts of sprues and that's replicated in the plastic kit and so there's very much like we don't realize it yeah but actually our hobby is we're, we're sort of pre-programmed on what our terrain should look like for different genres of games because that's what terrain has looked like for so long for example hobby trees our wargaming trees are vastly underscaled yeah yeah, yeah, yeah they are yeah. actually and if you actually go and you put a table together with a realistic sized tree people look at you like you're a freak yeah, <laughs> yeah. simply because we played for so long with trees that are six to eight to possibly you know 10 inches is a tall tree you know yeah. for a one inch model and you're like you look you actually look at a tree whoa no. i never, I've no never even really thought of that but that's a really good point yeah they so are really small something realistic yeah not, not where i'm from wrong well yeah trees don't get too tall here they blow over then <laughs> well, I mean, obviously in Britain we've got some quite big trees, but if you imagine, you know, this is where preconceptions of what terrain should be like, yeah, yeah. actually override what it should actually be like, because we're supposed to be replicating a real world. When you actually, there's loads of times when if you actually replicate a real world, it actually looks rather naff. So I'm going to throw this at you real quick. Uh, this this came from Thunderboy, uh, uh, buddy Michelle over in the Netherlands. Um, he says most of the games are, you know, the 28, 32 mil scale. Here's one of his favorite games, the drop fleet, drop zone, you know, drop, drop zone is a 10 mil scale. You know, what's one of the most important things to keep an eye on when you're trying to do terrain to a scale for a game? Okay. When it comes down to a scale, obviously, yeah, scaling is important. Now it's not so, so much important with natural stuff because trees and rocks and rivers can be, you know, so wide, so short, there's no defined. Yeah, when it comes to details, man-made things, i.e. they'll be compared next to a model, yeah, that's when the brain starts looking to see if things are the same size. So, for example, most wargaming buildings are scaled under because if you scaled them at the real size, they'd swamp the table. But their doors and windows, yeah, are at the right scale because that's what you see a model next to, yeah? yeah. So it's got to look right, so, which is why when you get uh, wargaming buildings, quite often the hovels are just a door and a window with very little around them because the building's been scaled down, but the features on the wall haven't, yeah? yeah? So there's that element. But when you drop down to particularly, dropping down to like sort of 10 mil, it's not a, something that I've done much of in a, a long time, to be truthful. But the one thing that I always suggest is when you drop down in scale, you've got to look at the bigger picture. Because what you're essentially do, doing is you do it looking at an aerial photo. So when you do larger scale stuff, you're often looking at details on the terrain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you're doing 10 mil, you know, and, and 6 mil, what you should be doing is the landscape. Yeah. And seeing how it fits in. Does this farmhouse fit with this sort of enclosure? Would this road go this way? Where's the sort or watch call it sort of? I mean, at six and ten mil scales, that's where you get to where ground undulations. You know, and you should be thinking about right. There's going to be slopes and stuff. Otherwise, it's very flat. You know, the further you go up in miniature scale, the less the ground wob moves, so to speak. So okay, I've got a bigger like over there. If you drop scale down, you've got a larger landscape. Yeah. Which means if you do it completely flat, you end up, this is very flat. So you need to start factoring in sort of the actual landscaping more. 
And that comes with taking a bigger picture, you know? Yeah. Best way of doing it is often I recommend if you're going to do real small scale stuff, get some aerial photos. Plan it out off aerial photos. I love yeah? that. That's a good that idea. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, trying to figure it out yourself, you're not going to. Print out some stuff from what you call it from Google Earth. You know, zoom in until you get the right level. Figure out where your enclosures, roads, how they wind. You know what I mean? Get a sense for scale as well. And not just that, highlighting. You know, quite often, you know, looking at Google Earth and stuff like that will give you a much better idea of how to simply paint roads, rivers, tracks. You know what I mean? So that they actually show up without not seeming off. If you know what I mean, because quite often yeah. if you take the if you take the twenty eight thirty two mil techniques down to a lower scale, they're too vibrant almost, and they don't like the look lines on the right. road. Yeah, you 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 you're forgetting that it's that you're giving a perception of where are you viewing this from, and as you drop a scale down, you're actually viewing it from higher, and so yeah. colours and stuff lose their vibrancy because of atmospherics. So if you start using like a uh, thirty two and twenty eight, well. Uh, 163 scale stuff on what you call it on smaller scale stuff doesn't look right yeah but you can't yeah. figure out why and quite often it's like actually you're forgetting you you're taking away a couple of thousand feet of atmospherics getting in the way of what you're looking at that makes sense that's a good point when it comes to building terrain have you ever had like a preference of like sci-fi versus fantasy on on what you enjoy making Oh, I like grass work. Yeah, I don't mind what it's doing. I grew up in North Wales. Yeah, which is you know the Welsh mountains, beaches, walking across the headland. And as a kid, uh, I grew up in a place called Anglesey. My my closest friend lived four miles away from me. Yeah, so we lived in the middle of nowhere. So there was a lot of walking through fields because he lived in the middle of nowhere anyway. So by the time I got to his house, the only thing we could do was walk locally. You know what I mean? The local town was about another four or five miles away, you know? So yeah. it was like, well, we're not walking there. So I spent a lot of time. Also, uh, although I grew up in North on the island, Anglesey, my family are from sort of the Midlands of England, Stoke-on-Trent. So there was a lot of traveling through the North Wales mountains as a child, you know, a lot, backwards and forwards every weekend. And it's a couple hour journey, you know? Yeah. And so you go from the beach, through Snowdonia mountain range and into like the Midlands, which is relatively flat, you know. You go through Shropshire, which is the basis of the Shire in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So you literally go through, I mean, growing up, you know, every other weekend, I'd have about a four or five hour blast of, of scenic tours. You know, there's a waterfall. You know, and my family would always make it interesting. We'll go this route. We'll go over that mountain. We'll go this way. You know, if they weren't in a, in a rush, you know, or, you know, Traveling through North Wales, you're talking country roads. If one got blocked, everyone would go a different way. So there's lots of scenery in my youth, yeah? And so when I sit down and model, I'm always doing green work. So it tends to be yeah. historical and fantasy, but I do like sci-fi. You know, I am more of a, you know, I've been a 40K player most of my life. You Are know you still I mean? playing 40K? I'm dipping into to Kill Team at the minute. Yeah. Uh, but the one problem with 40k is the sheer overload when you get back into it. You know, you know what I mean? As an old hobbyist, it's so many armies, so many models. So, yeah, and so I'm just doing it simply, yeah, because I yeah. love the world. I love making the terrain for it, and I don't... I've got my armies, you know what I mean? I've got a, a Bane blade sitting on the shelf, you know, so my guard are always around sort of stuff. But 
the commitment to go full 40k yeah it is i'd have to turn my channel that way you know it'd be it'd be that much of a hobby commitment and that much of a time that i'd have to sort of dedicate my channel to it as well to make it viable mm -hmm. whereas kill team's one of those things where i still get the opportunity to make the really cool inter terrain yeah but my actual model count my my rules knowledge yeah doesn't need to be as high yeah i can still immerse myself in the ip i mean i i i've got the app i love the digital animations they do yeah uh i'm on audible and i'm constantly downloading imperial guard books you know what i mean that i listen to each evening so when it comes to ip and the world i want to exist in it's 40k it's just the the world I live in is historical and fantasy and everything else to be truthful. <laughs> no, that that's fair. Is there anything else that you're actively playing at the moment? I saw that you were playing Minecraft earlier. No, no, I'm not playing Minecraft. That's my daughter. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> oh, he's playing Minecraft. It makes so much for Mel to be doing something like that. Like it's just it's another form of creation. Well, well the, I used to play Minecraft, yeah, until I realized I cannot play Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I logged up something like 200 hours in a month, yeah. Which, it became, yeah. You know what I mean? And it was like, I had to step back and it, it was like, right, you either have to become a Minecraft streamer or you have to stop building digital things, get pull you, your finger out your backside and start working on tutorials because I've got this great <laughs> village. I mean, I've got automated iron golems falling out. It's done in survival. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my, re, my, re, my recent uh, digital addiction, yeah, which I've had to wean myself off has been Valheim, which is basically Viking Minecraft. And it was like, I'm in Minecraft. Ooh, I like that. I like the sound of that. Oh, Valheim's brilliant. Valheim's a brilliant game. Yeah, especially if you're a ter terrain maker. Yeah, that's why I've had to step back from it. Yeah, because yeah. I was clocking up some serious hours on that as well. You know what I mean? And actually, no, you need to get back into physical building and your terrain building base. You know what I mean? But, yeah. but earlier, yeah, that that's my daughter, Willow. Both my oh, son okay. and my daughter. Whew. It's not available for Mac, so I can't get sucked into that. Sorry, <laughs> oh, George. Games, games are never available for Mac. <laughs> Mac doesn't matter. That, that's Valheim. part of the reason I have them. So I don't <laughs> get sucked into them. Valheim is a wonderful game, to be truthful. It's Viking Minecraft, but it's been designed co-opt. Yeah, so it works oh, nice. best if you've got, like, and you can run personal servers, you know, and it, it's seed-generated worlds. And... There were nights I used to sit here with a drink. I'd be sailing around, what you call it, you know, the seas in my longboat. I've got Vikings playing on Netflix, you know, and then all of a sudden a Kraken would come up and I'd start screaming like a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But no, I've had to, I have to, I have to weed myself off computer games, yeah, because I do like the, yeah, especially immersive world ones because it, it, it's just the terrain bugging me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sitting there like, no, no, that brick's not in place. You know, it's like, dude, you've been here for three hours. We're away now. Go paint something. Yeah, I can get that. I can get behind that. With all of the skills and stuff when it comes to terrain, do you still buy stuff? I mean, I see that you've got the crates there that you were building the other night. But do you ever kind of look at kits and go, well, I mean, I could buy that, but I could just make it. Does the temptation of being lazy get to you? To be truthful, this is dual. First off, it you should make the acknowledgement at this point. It's very rare I buy kits. 
You know, most of the times if I'm interested in a kit, you know, a manufacturer is quite delighted that I'm interested in a kit because it means there's a good chance it's going to end up on my channel. You know, and that's yep. just the, you know, the, the reflection of them seeing me as a, an ability to market product. So the cost of giving the, you know, the actual, not the retail price, but the actual production cost. You know, the production costs on an MDF kit, it might be a fiver, you know, so it's nothing to them. Yeah. Whereas yep. the marketing they get back from having it on the channel means that, you know, it's very rare I actually have to buy kits. Yep. But very right. often I will see kits that I want. Yeah. And quite often it's like, yeah, I can build that, but I can do something to that kit to smarten it up. And there's a speed up process. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, you know, the factor of when you do this as a living and you do a content production as a living, projects can't take too long. So, yeah, I could build the jungle huts from scratch, but do I need to? Yeah. 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 If I'm building a village, yeah, I could. So, for example, teaching someone to build a jungle hut, I only need to build one jungle hut, then it can go on the tutorial piece shelf. If I need a village for my bolt action game, I'm going to need a few pieces, which means actually I've got a whole video. Yeah. yeah. There's still only one teaching video in that. I can only teach one set of here's how to build a jungle hut. So there's only one actual production video, but there's a lot of work in that. So behind the scenes, when I'm looking at what I'm going to do, it's often like, right, how much work is there and how much content can I produce out of that that's useful? Yeah. 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 Because there's no point spending 30 hours on a five minute video. Exactly. When, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the analogy is yeah, if you're teaching, teach someone to flock on a two by two tile, a six by four is just simply six times more work. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's sort of been, be, it being the channel and it's it sort of been what I do also influences my hobby decisions about where i can do and where i mean i mean at the end of the day i'm itching to do helms deep yeah but there's a little thing in the back of me going that's a long project and basically it's just stone walls boats how many videos are you actually going to get out of that yeah you know and it's a harsh thing to say but when you when you know this becomes your living and you know paying your child maintenance based on content production bills and things like that it becomes a reality which is why like these projects only sort of happen when someone goes i'll commission you to do it so it's like all right well there's a financial input from there plus you know that sort of offsets i'm not going to get as many videos out of this project if i spent this time doing purely simple t tutorial pieces so quite often it, it's very much horses for courses you know I mean, I can build sci-fi stuff. I have a 3D printer, but I still buy plastic. Yeah. You know, I can 3D print it, but I know how long that's going to take. Yeah. You know, yeah. so there's all these sort of variables. And it's often about, right, how can I generate the most useful content? Yeah. As relatively quickly as possible without seeming like I'm taking the piss, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, it, there's a lot of channels which, and I'm not going to diss them, but there's a lot of content. Not actually, not in our hobby, actually. Our hobby is pretty good when it comes to imparting information. But I think it's because of the mindset of the people in this hobby. We tend to be professional people. We tend to be educated. And so when we look at content, we're looking at its educational value. You know what I mean? And so yeah. we tend to gravitate towards channels that we really get something from. So, for example, yeah, there's lots of YouTube channels that I just would not watch. And I'm not talking about hobby channels. I'm talking about the silly things that people do on YouTube, on YouTube channels, where, yeah. you, where you look at it and you're like, that's five minutes and that's just nothing. That doesn't exist in our, in our content world. Not really, no. The closest we might get is, you know, uh, the Flash Gits animations and stuff like that. 
You know what I mean? But it's still entertaining. Yeah. yeah. Generally, and it's a different sort of it's a different sort of content. Yeah, but generally we produce educational content. So there's generally a sort of pressure as a content producer to say, right, what am I putting over on this? Is it worth it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Is this worth their time? Because you don't want people to go, oh, I've watched that. And what did I really learn? You know, I mean, it's one yeah. of the reasons why I think it's important that I, I include my mistakes and how I fix them in. Yeah, because that's still educational. Yeah, I screwed up, but okay, here's how I screwed up so you don't screw up, and here's how I'm going to hide it or fix it so you can too. Yeah. You know, from my point of view, I include those from an educational basis. But the content production that we do is, is quite different to the rest of the world. And that's generally down because generally, you know, I mean, if you're the sort of person that spends 50 quid for a 400-page book of text so you can learn it to play your hobby, yeah, you tend to like your education, you tend to like your thinking stuff. Do you what know what I mean? Things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? We've all got the bookshelves, you know what I mean? Exactly. You know, I mean, when you buy books and study, I mean, I always sort of make the analogy, you know, when you look at the historical sort of side of wargaming, yeah, most people walking around in historical wargaming, no matter what they do, probably have degree level history in a specific period in human history. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're self-taught. Yeah, which sort of says a lot about our hobby and, you know, they look for content. So when you're doing content and when I do content, there's always a balance of, right, what are people getting out of this? Yeah. And quite often my project logs are more about what I don't know what I'm going to do, what I'm challenged by, what mistakes I've made. Yeah, because that's the educational people people want to see they want to see someone deal with those challenges yeah to the extent where when i do my project vlogs i don't actually teach any terrain making in them i just talk about the challenges and what i'm worried about or what i've got to try and achieve yeah yeah and it's quite strange you know as content but they're very well liked yeah yet they actually teach nothing because i do that in the tutorial content that beside the big projects you know what i mean but it shows there's a lot of thinking in, in our industry, you know, and so it, it, you really do have to put some thought and, and not do anything too clickbaity. Do you I know think I mean? to some extent there's also the the element of uh, it's not just me that feels that way. Look, even Mel has experiences this as well. It's I think from a user perspective, people feel comfort knowing that they're not the only ones that struggle with the doubt and they're having to figure out how to do things. I think that's one. I, that's one thing that comes up on the channel quite a lot. That people like that I show my mistakes. Mm. That I'm honest about you know the problems you know I'm having with a build or where I've screwed up or where I'm not happy. I mean to be perfectly honest, yeah. Every commission I've done, if you go along to my pro playlist on the channel, yeah, and go to the last video, it's basically me bitching for half an hour about <laughs> the build. Yeah, and it normally takes me, yeah, about two years before I actually like it, you know, and then I'll come across it in a photo, you know, on a group where everyone shared it because they've seen it at a store and played a game on it. Oh, yeah, that's mine. I quite like that. I did a good job there. <laughs> I mean, until then, it's quite often the disappointments. And I think, like you say, there's this, there's this thing in our hobby, which I, I'm not a fan of, which is sort of post-production perfection, where yeah, I could, yeah. you only see the sort of finished product, and it's perfect, and everything went perfectly fine the whole way through it. Yeah, now I don't know about your hobby, but there's been plenty, I mean, I don't, that there's an evening that doesn't go by that, that, that there isn't a, 
oh, or uh, I've stuck something to my finger, or I've taken something off that should have glued, and it's glued to my finger and not the model, you know, or I've knocked something over. Or I really hate superglue the model, or... You, it's it's a physical hobby with various different yeah. sorts of mediums. Yeah. Of course, you're going to make mistakes. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I can I can really relate to that. I was doing a I was trying to do a video. This, this is when we're we're still in our infancy, but I wasn't even like you know doing any sort of baby steps. I was just trying to paint a dice tower. I think like oh it's dice tower airbrush it boom easy. Yeah, stupid me is like oh yeah wood absorbs paint. White paint is impossible to cover wood with. And so I'm sitting there like on the fly trying to figure out how to fix this white paint idea I have with something else so it doesn't look like crap. It's often the case, and I've been there many times. But we have this post-production sort of perfection thing, you know, and I blame GW, yeah, because White Dwarf went from very arts and crafty and, hey, here's some hobby stuff to the pinnacle of modeling, you know, and the industry followed with amazing... Then there became this pressure on everyone, yeah, to make really beautiful models. And I was like, well, I can't, yeah. So, sod it. I'm just going to do me. You do you, boo. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that attracts, you know, the fact that I do talk about the downside and the screw-ups and the mistakes, and it's okay. Yeah, because you can still end up with a beautiful table at the end of it. You know what I mean? You can still end up with a game. I mean, when you're painting a model, I mean, when you see what you call it, you know, these beautifully painted models, that's great. Now be two foot away from the model, like it's supposed to be on a table. What of that detail can you actually see? So it was as a hobby. Yeah. yeah, so I, I sort of like, I, I, I disarm that. If I'm not saying you shouldn't paint your, your models beautifully. I try and paint my models as beautifully as I can. I mean, this, one, this guy's 10 years old, yeah, and he's not going to focus. But I went to town on him, and I would go into town on my Imperial Guard. You know, they're all converted, you know, custom bases, custom, I mean, make my own predators, you know what I mean, and that sort of stuff. But I think it's important that we should also say it's okay to slap some paint on it, you know, throw a wash on it, get it on the table and have some fun. If, 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 if these challenges are stopping you from actually playing your hobby or enjoying your hobby, don't make them challenges, you know. So I've always been one in the ho hobby to like, yeah, I am going to screw up and, you know, I am going to make mistakes and I'm going to show them off, you know. And with my slapdash method, it's pretty much every video, yeah, but it works and people accept it. So I think it's important before we, we sort of... We go to top end and we force people out of the hobby by thinking they're never going to get there. That's good. Speaking of, I don't remember, I don't know if it was the same for you over in the UK, but I know that it was like this in the US and here in Australia for a while. Do you remember the old mentality of you're not sharing your tips, people have to earn that knowledge for themselves and where it used to be a lot more closed off than it is now? Uh, I do with model painting. I'm just having a sweetie. You'll have to excuse me, guys. Keep my sugar up at this time of night. <laughs> right. I do with model painting, but not so much terrain. Mm. I wasn't sure if it was universal. I definitely remember it with model painting. I think the now, I'm very being, glad that that changed. I think the reason being, yeah, is that within the hobby back in the old White Dwarves when we first got in, yeah, yeah, there was an exclusivity about how you sort of... Because, I mean, there weren't painting guys, mm. yeah, or, or they were very, very simple, yep. you know, because... The best painters generally did want to keep their tip technique secret. 
But at the same time, the old white dwarves were packed full of articles of glue these two spray cans together, put this dome on top, stick this gun on. You've got a grav tank. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so the teaching and the sharing of knowledge was ingrained as being okay within the terrain making the scratch building side because i mean it was even included in the rooks you know you yeah, had yeah, right. making guys actually in you know the third edition fantasy yeah same in rogue trader if you have a look if you're a trader you know there's about 12 pages of modeling guides in there of scratch building how to make terrain and that sort of stuff and back in fantasy Every fantasy uh, book has what you call at the start of it, how to make a war games table. Yep. You know, and that one page of the two blokes with I would table that no one ever built. You know what I mean? But, the, you know, every every book has that table. You know, I was going to say, there, there's a guy local here to me. He played orcs. He had all, all the original Rogue Trader orcs and all of his vehicles. Not a single one of them was a kit. Every single vehicle was scratch built from a toilet paper tube or an oatmeal canister or something. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And I think, you know, it was the way. But, you, I mean, you've also got to remember that as terrain builders, we stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, we stand on the film industry. You know, Jerry Anderson. I yeah. mean, who didn't want to make... I mean, I made Tracy Island when I was a kid. You know what I mean? I, You know, we literally made it out of paper mache and that sort of stuff as a kid. Blue Peter, I don't know if you've come across that, but it was a kid's TV show that's been running for like 40, 50 years and still running, I believe. But they used to do craft elements and over about a month they did, a, you know, we're going to build Tracy Island out of toilet rolls and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, you know, and... I had one. We built it. Yeah. Nice. So terrain making, you know, it comes from the model making world when, you know, we didn't have CGI. And if they wanted to make the, you know, if they wanted a landscape, I mean, you've seen the old black and white photos of the guys walking through with a bucket of snow, frosting yep. up, you know, a landscape that they're literally walking through, you know, and, you know, we've sort of taken those techniques. So there's another element that I think, whereas with the, you know, model painting, there's no doubt that the techniques that have come along in model painting belong to the wargaming community because there are no yes. better, you know, small scale miniature painters than the model community. I mean, yeah. you, I mean, I look at fine artists. I, I'm, I'm based in a collection of studios, which is tied in with a university art department. Yeah, and it's like I look at artworks. So it's like I know people who can fit that on a space marine shoulder pad and still make it look better. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's like the yeah. level, of, and that that does belong to the wargaming community. So I can understand why people are more protective over how they've done. And the only reason they're sharing it, monetize it, patron, because they weren't sharing yeah. it before they could make money off it. Yeah, right. they made their yeah, money through true. commissions. And so keeping it secret was actually the better way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. but terrain making, we, came, we you know, everything we do. Yes, you can turn around and say, oh, you know, people like me, Real Terrain Hobbies, Viv, all the other guys that are in the industry, Lucas, all those. Yeah, we're developing techniques. But pretty much most of what we do, yeah, we've learned from other people in an entirely different industry. So I think that's the difference in the sharing. The fact that the miniature painters, they own those techniques. You know, the beautifulness and the, the industry owns those beautiful techniques and the reputation of, hey, we're the scale min model painters. I mean, you get the guys who do Gundam, yeah? And it's like, yeah, that's yeah. nice. Now do it at 28 mil because that's where mm -hmm. I'm working at, mate. Do you know what I mean? And then you get yeah. the guys who are like absolute freaks and they're painting like six mil 
and they're painting the shoulder blades or decals on. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, they're really working at that level and they're sculpting green stuff cloaks on things that are smaller than my little fingernail. Yeah. yeah. So, it's like, come on, I can only hate you so much right now. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like... It's like, stop um, being good. So, I'm... I'm <laughs> I love the fact that we are the best miniature painters in the world as an industry. Yeah, I just, there's just this little bit of me where I, I, I need to bring out my big rubber mallet to whack people on the heads every day. It doesn't have to be perfect to play with it, though. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's going to make, first, I'm going to steal one of your questions because this is very pertinent to me having to move every couple of years. Uh, so one of Bruce's questions was the balance between space and terrain. And then scratch build between finished pieces and storage issues because within I'm an Air Force officer, so I move every two to three years. Right. So I have a, bo- a a Tupperware box, plastic Tupperware box that's filled with all my drop fleet, drop zone commander terrain, and I have some 3D terrain that for my Star Wars Legion stuff that I haven't put together yet because every two to three years I'm moving around. So what's your thoughts or and I've actually it for for the detailed ones. There's a, a video talk terrain playlist on storage and it's also a section in my book yeah because storage for uh wargamer it's a challenge for all of us yes it yeah. is yeah you know and especially you know forces you're always on the move you know <laughs> loads of british forces guys play wargaming it's quite common americans in general work you tend to move for your jobs and and that sort of stuff two to three years you know? for me so yeah yeah so i mean mobile terrain and I always sort of go with the argument, the best tip I can give you is build it for your storage, yeah? So look at what you've actually got, yeah, to store, what box you're going to store it in, and then make your terrain to fit that. And quite simply, start off, yeah? Uh, So you're talking plastic boxes. I mean, if you can get a plastic box that's twice the height of terrain, well, you can get some cardboard tubes, put another layer of cardboard in there, yeah, and then make that dual layered. Yeah, you can work out what the heights are, and then you've got a, this is my maximum height of a terrain feature. Mm -hmm. And that way you can make sure it always fits into the box. The other thing is when you're making your set, yeah, get a bit of cardboard, put it in your box, take it out, use that to cut out your templates for all all your base pieces. So your corner pieces, your edge pieces, your middle pieces. And then when you, you use those to make your terrain, you know all those terrain pieces will fit flatly in the bottom of the box because you made them out of a template that fits in the box. And then if you're using dual layer, you can put a layer onto that. Yeah, so quite often if you're moving a lot, the best thing to go is start off with your storage and creatively plan, go, right, here's I need to play my game. Yeah, I need so many farmhouses, so many hedges, so trees, I need a river, so many roads. How am I going to fit this into this box and trial run it with bits of paper? Yeah, because if you just start, I mean, it's, a, it's generally only like, I need to make sure of the height, and I make sure to make make sure of my base size that I can stack it like this. Once you've got those sort of specifications down, you can crack on with terrain building mm-hmm. and go with the pleasure that I know immediately that when I finish this, it's all going to go into that one box. There's not going to be anything that leaves over. I'm not going to get anything to play. And that, that terrain setup is in that box. Yeah, and then your hobby becomes, your transport becomes one box. Yeah. Or if you're like me, many, many, several one boxes. <laughs> no, I'm with you on that. Seriously. Yeah, exactly. But at least it's logical and it's structured. You know, you could go, this is my 40K box. This is my bolt action box. Yeah, or this is my Age of Sigmar box. Yeah, and it's got yeah. everything you need. So when it comes to playing a game because Storage isn't just the issue. Yeah, where's storage? It's getting it out of storage. It's setting it up. It's putting it away. You know, 
I mean, it's bad enough when the box you want has, is on the bottom of the pile and you've got to take all the top boxes off to get to. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're looking at like, okay, I, the terrain I need is spread across three different boxes. And because I'm moving, one of them's in the garage. Yeah. I'm not sure. Is that in the boot of my car? And you've got to dig through them because, you know, you piled it in haphazardly. And th so if you start off with what you're storing it in, yeah, use that to limit your base size by way, what you can actually fit in there and the height. Then it just becomes one box that you just get out, you get to the table, you lay your terrain out nice and easy, slide your box under the table and you get gaming. Yeah. Nope. After that, there's no need to go in that box. Yeah. You also don't be doing this thing where you've got several boxes open at one time while you're trying to set up a game and your wife who's going, are you going to clear this? Well, you know, <laughs> I don't have that anymore either. But, you know, but my, my, I got so bad at my house, I had to get a studio. That's why <laughs> yeah. I have my own game room. Yeah, that's why I, I remember the videos the on the kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the general provision is that, you know, if storage is an issue, start with what you're storing it in. Yeah, because then it's just in one box, in one place with everything you need. Yes, that may limit your build slightly. Yeah, but at least you're not going to be left over that situation where, well, two thirds of it is in the box and then I have to put the other third on top of it and that's getting broken by yeah that's a good tip i appreciate it mill because uh no, i've dealt you. much much with terrain building myself because i'm just like i move every couple of years and i'm trying i'm afraid that if i build something it's just going to break and because i know how the movers are sometimes contract contracted out that they use yeah. for us lowest bidder. it is lowest bidder it really is lowest bidder and so sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's not, it's just dump stuff in a box and and seal it up and that's how the box shows up to my house sometimes so it's yeah yeah well that's military movers for you. Yeah, yeah unfortunate. And that, that's uh, that's also being a commissioned officer, mate. Get it in there, lads. Just throw it in. Just throw yep. it in. <laughs> <laughs> you can afford it if you break something. Yep. Yep. So true. What's the what's the cool, what's the coolest new thing you've learned recently? What's the coolest new thing I've learned? Yeah. yeah. Uh, here's one for you. I learned it yesterday. Okay. Uh, easy silicon molding molds. Now. What you do is you get silicon sealant, yeah, put it in a disposable sort of mixing tub, any sort of tub you've got or bowl that you can, you know, because it's going to knacker the bowl. So put it in something disposable. Put a little bit of food colouring in or dye, yeah, just to give it a little bit of a colour, yeah. And then once you've mixed it round, throw it into a bowl of, what you call it, of cornstarch and start mixing it, yeah. And you end up with this putty that you can just press mould on, yeah, without no uh, releasing agent or anything like that. And then just drop a acrylic resin in to make uh, replicas. And you can just reuse it as much as you want. And it's just silicon sealant, a little bit of dye just to give it a bit of colour and just get the mix. And then throw it into some cornstarch. And I learned this on, and on my Terraniacs group. I have a like a support group called the Terraniacs. And someone posted it and he just mentioned it. And I'm like, wait, what? Because I've done Yeah, this is this sealant. is new for me. I've never yeah. heard this. No, well, the silicon sealant technique's been around for a while, but it used to be the, that, you know, you get something. You'd have to put Vaseline over it as a barrier, as a release agent. Yeah. And then you, you'd squeeze out the silicon sealant over it, which was always a bit messy. But once the silicon sealant cures off, you can pretty much peel it off and you've got a flexible mold. Yeah. But this cornstarch one, it was just like, dirt, 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 reusable mold. Wow. 
Somewhere out there, there's a rubber manufacturer that's... Mel, what are you doing? Be quiet. Oh, trust me. <laughs> there have been many manufacturers along the years that have gone, oh, God, he's going into our field. <laughs> yeah. And I've done that many a times. Yeah. I mean, one of my favourite things is, what you call it, is pointing out to people on live streams that when, when, when a manufacturer produces, like, you know, special modelling material, you can request the technical data sheet, which will list all its ingredients. <laughs> you know, if you want to yeah. know what's in GW's technical paints, just put a request in for the technical data sheet, which they have to provide you by law. By law. Yeah, and in the technical data sheets, it lists all the ingredients. Filler, <laughs> PVA, I yeah, that's flock. Yeah, I know how to do this. Not, not the specific amounts and like the ratios, but they have to tell you everything that's in there. Yeah, experimenting is half of the in fun. In the UK, in the UK, you do have to list them in the order of what of amounts, so you know what the majority oh. one is. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, like, I'm going to send you an email of a list of. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean. I did it once with Games Workshop, and God knows what went through their head when a quest from the terrain shooter for a technical data sheet for their new technical paints came through. It was like, he's asking us for secret, and we're compelled by law to give them. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. But no, that's the, the, the silicon mold one is the latest one I've picked up. You know, and I'm always picking up new stuff. You know, I like learning and that sort of stuff. So I've already decided, you know, I'm going to give it a go on the channel next week. You know? I'm it's looking forward to this. The group and the fact that trained people do share their techniques more because it's a it generally is a rising tide, if you know what I mean. Yeah. R rising tide lifts right. some rising ships. Rising tide raises all boats. That's it. Yeah. So basically, you know, I know this. Raising, it's good for all of us. Do you get affected by shiny syndrome like the rest of us? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you, you fell for it? Uh, probably about, what you call it, about two months ago. Yeah, and I was down visiting the guys at Full Ground, and they took me to this mod shop, which was just amazing. Yeah, it was one of those where, you know, just packed with shelf upon shelf upon shelf of stuff. So, I mean, they had stuff that had been out of production for donkey's years. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I walked out like this. <laughs> you know, I was just like, I'm having that, I'm having that, I'm having that. Uh, generally, when it comes to shiny syndrome with the hobby, uh, the other thing is Admech stuff. Yeah. Yep. I love Admech. I don't know why. Yeah. But for some reason, it's my favorite bit of 40K. It's the same reason I like Space Wolves. Yeah. They're, they're just something that, you know, it, it rings my bell. Yeah, and, you know, when I see the Admech stuff, and the, it's like, I don't even play Admech, and I've got the models. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and I bought them without even realising I was buying them or even uh, even reading the rules for them. I'd just seen them in my local GW, and it's like, I'm buying that. For me, it was, which is the image that you see behind me, it's all the Conquest Orc stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because it's Orcs riding dinosaurs. What's not to love about that? Yeah. I think I think that there comes a time when watch you, in this hobby of ours we always see things that's just too cool not to buy it. Yeah, you know. And if somebody comes up with a genuine good idea, it's like I have to buy that because if it's not successful, I'm not going to be able to see it. Yeah, and then they yeah. won't do something cool next time. Yeah, there is a, a, a trend like that through our hobby. You know what I mean? Like cool stuff rules. The rule of cool. Yeah. You know, so, you know yeah. sometimes just out of completely out of like, you know, out of nowhere, a new game can come along. 
it gets quite strong following because it has done something. You the know. kind of the the well overused trope of people putting a um, a TARDIS in the middle of their game board sometimes, even if it doesn't make sense in the setting, because of course it does. It's Doctor Who; he, he belongs everywhere. It's just it's the rule of cool. I don't care how out of place it is in the middle of World War Two. Well, I mean, forty k or whatever for for Doctor Who, you know. I mean, it, it's a bit like that thing that they do at Renaissance fairs where people go around dressed up as Star Trek people, like, you know, on, on like an away mission. Yeah, yeah. and I just think that's beautiful. <laughs> I think it's brilliant as an idea. You know what I mean? I've not seen it in the UK yet. I've seen it at plenty of Americans, but I've not seen it done at a UK like reenactment or something like that yet. And I think it'd be great with a TARDIS at the Civil War. Yeah. In fact,. Yeah. Do- I mean, we could get away with a TARDIS better than you can get away with a Star Trek because everyone in Britain knows what a TARDIS is. Do you, do, do you know why you see the, the the Star Trek thing and Renaissance fairs in America so much? Do you know why why you see that so often? We I have no respect for anything. <laughs> it could be that, to be truthful. You know, it could be like, you know, I'm going to completely crash your genre. With, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's basically, it's owning the Renaissance fair, isn't it? walking yeah. in your Star Trek, because it's literally saying, yes. this is actually all about what we're doing here. <laughs> you know, and you're the set, yeah? But I, I do think a TARDIS, uh, you know, a medieval reenactment would be good. And, you know, putting them on terrain pieces, historical ones, they're good. I mean, my main concern right now is the fact that there's mini-mels out, in, and I have no idea where I'm to see those. Yeah. I haven't even my- put mine together yet, so... I need something very special. That, that's, <laughs> that's my great hope, that the majority of people saw it as something quirky Dave did on the Kickstarter, because I want to be clear. Yeah? Yes. I only found out about that when they were being shipped across from Australia to the UK. They'd already been digitally modelled, signed off, produced, boxed, and shipped before I got advised there'd been a model made of me. Yeah, <laughs> Which he did on purpose, because he knew that you were going to say no if he asked you. Oh, yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I already said no to it at the start. And you just, I'm doing it. And, you know, I didn't realise they came from my neck of the woods. Yeah, 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 a Monster Fight Club. Oh, okay. I didn't realise they were so close to me. Bruce. There we go. Yeah, Bruce, do, you, do you know why they came from Australia? Because only no. you guys are crazy enough to do something like that to make a, a you know, yeah, we'll, we'll make a Mel. We'll, 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 we'll just take his likeness and spatter it all over the world. We'll, we'll do that. I mean, it's a... <laughs> Either that, yeah. Now, the way I look at it is, yeah, the Mel would have had to have been made by a modeling company, yeah? And I imagine a conversation was, you're right, okay, it's Mel. And Dave will be like, Mel doesn't know about this. So I think he went to Australia because there's a good chance that whoever's in Australia, like, now nah, I'm never going to have to look in the eye. <laughs> you know what I mean? America, possibly. The UK, you make a model of me in the UK. We are going to chat, mate. I am going to drive down and we're going to just in case again. You know what I mean? Yeah. But Australia, you were safe. Also, Dave is a native Aussie. You know, that's where it's from. So that's where his, his roots are and that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? So I'm sure he had a mate. It's like, who, you know, yeah, I'll do a Mel without him signing up. <laughs> you know what I mean? But now I have this thing where I don't know if I'm going to be going along to a convention. Corner of a table, there's me looking on at the battle because someone's decided to put me on their table. Well, I already know how I'm going to use mine, but mine, like George's, is still in the bag because I don't want to touch it until I'm ready. You see, this worries me. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll even tell you exactly how I'm going to do it. 
No, don't you're, tell you're, me. I don't want to know. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> no, no. Listen, people are hot. Someone sent me a photo, yeah, of the build he's doing of me sitting on a porcelain toilet on top oh, of a God. column for a statue. Yeah? That's just me. And I'll tell you, someone sent me concept sketches of what he was going to do in it for the National Green stuff sculpting, and that was not pleasant. Yeah, in fact, I'm pretty damn sure I can't even put in that diorama on my YouTube channel. Yeah? So the idea, remember... It's a bit like voodoo. There's lots of mini me's out there, and I don't know what people are doing with me with their mini me's. Yeah, that's kind of you that's know? very disturbing. I can imagine. Well, you know, I don't mind being put on a terrain piece. I don't mind my head being put on top of you, like you know, your Terminator captain. It's a that's bit of a pretty giggle. much what I'm going with. Yeah, is you being there's a part of heads, terrain right? piece. There's but, two heads for it, right? Yeah, there's two heads. Yeah. Oh, perfect. But, but you know, you never know what the creative side are going to do. And my yeah. heart are merciless for torturing me anyway. Especially when they know that you're not entirely comfortable with it to begin with. It's how you know, how far right. can we poke the bear? You know, I've never been one big for the fandom. Or, you know, people keep calling me like a celebrity and it's never well. You know, I don't sit in those shoes well. You know, I'm just me. I do my thing. You know, if people like it, that's great. If I can help people along the way, even better. You know what I mean? But and so having a, a model, I can only, I mean, I signed off and there's no issues. We've even sort of, I've provisionally agreed that we do another Kickstarter. Perhaps we should do like a 15 mil and a 6 mil Mel or something like that. And just call it Mel for scale as, as a joke. Because the cat's out of the bag now. What they can do with 28 yeah. mil, they can do with 15. You know, so it's a bit of a giggle now. Yeah. But generally, you know, it's not something I would have gone down a miniature of me. You know what I mean? But here I am. I'm stuck with it now because there's five and a half thousand out in the world. Is that it? Yeah. Five and a half thousand in total. Apparently. You're sure the, the mold was broken after he was done? You can't make I more? Have no idea. <laughs> I know there's a box of Warlord of a couple of hundred of me, I think. Yeah, which is concerning. Because that's an entire army of Mel's. It'll be like Mr. M <laughs> Mr. Melzik. <laughs> Mr. Melzik, that's it. <laughs> Is that the creature that comes out of the box in um, yeah. Rick and Morty? Yeah, yeah, but Mr. Music. Yeah, but but Melzik instead. Yeah, the Melzik <laughs> here to help you with the training. I can't do no, it. Man. If you're listening or watching to this, there's your idea. But we'll I like that idea. Mel turns up. Yeah, that's all I'm settling with. I'm just going to see where it turns up and just run it. You know, I'm not sure how we got onto mini Mel's. To be perfectly honest, right? What's your next question, gents? Um, so a few minutes ago, you talked about um going in and like the shiny effect, and you walked out with armloads of stuff. Oh, that's of all the tools, you know, because you know we want to do this on a budget because the hobby is stupid expensive when you really start getting into it. What is the one tool for doing terrain as a hobby that you're going to say, no, spend the money on a good tool, don't go cheap? Hot wire cutter. The what? Hot, hot wire cutter. A, hot, a yeah. hot wire cutter? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the majority of hobby tools, paint brushes, blades, files, you can use simple pound shop stuff. You know, generally, I generally recommend it because terrain making tends to go through tools. You know, foam yeah. blunt blades pretty quickly. Working with PVA and fill and that sort of stuff, it can knacker brushes. Need a decent size brush. So kiddies arts and craft brushes, the plastic ones, are often more durable and better to go with with terrain because you can use them for six months and then you know replace them. 
I mean, I have posh terrain brushes and I don't use them because it's like they're too posh. They're too good for, for you know, the, the hammer you do with terrain. But when it comes down to tools, one of the uh, biggest sort of when you need to buy tools to work with terrain, the first sort of tool you buy out of the pound after moving on pound shop and basic, basic tools. Yeah, is a hot wire cutter it's your first specialist tool yeah if you go for the battery powered ones they eat batteries quicker than they eat the damn foam yeah and within like you know after the, the battery power is sort of like dip down so the current's less so the wire doesn't get so the cut is slower yeah uh spend your money on getting a decent hot wire cutter i mean i've got uh for example i've got two table cutters okay one's a relatively simple one one's a more expensive one yeah the more expensive one has a spring that keeps the hot wire taut because as the wire gets hotter yeah it stretches because it becomes yep. more like yeah with the heat going through which means that you cut it cutter on just the simple one without the spring gets slack and starts to bow whereas the more professional one always stays taut because it's spring loaded yeah and it's the first thing where i really started to realize that yeah this makes a difference it really does make a difference getting a decent sturdy well-built mains powered hot wire cutter after that the only other one for me because everything else i've ever used has really been budget i've not gone oh i need that or that i, I just needed that and the budget one will do yeah the only other specialist thing where i i, I generally suggest yes yeah, spend the money is an airbrush i'll agree yeah. with you on that 100%. yeah no, absolutely. i mean I, when i first got my airbrushing kit you know when i first started yeah it came with an airbrush yeah and i, I had so many problems with that i i gave up on airbrushing yeah a lot of people it do only when i went to a friend and actually tried a proper airbrush yeah and i realized the difference between the budget airbrushes and just a simple something like a badger patron you know a good all-rounder yep. yeah the yeah difference it made and now you know my airbrush is in my studio that badger patriot wife i bought four years later is still getting hammered and got this weekend with all sorts of stuff getting thrown watered down pva for ceiling paint you know all sorts goes through it yeah and it, you know i mean it's not silver anymore you know it's various paint and filler colors on the outside but the inside is immaculate and it sprays beautiful yeah so they're my two things when it comes down to you know where do you really want to spend your money and you know when it comes to shiny stuff and what do you spend your money on a decent hot wire cutter yeah i mean the best one on the market for, from my opinion is actually the scenic's hand one yeah because it's really uh it's trigger activated which means that you know it's not going to be running when you're not using it yeah it's mains powered with a really long cable you know the cable's about three four meters long yeah which is really but, important yeah yeah and but it's got two metal really sturdy bars and it's got about a six inch watch like gap on the wire which is just enough to cut uh two inch foam at a decent slope for making hills because a lot of hot wire cutters they actually have quite a narrow cutting which is great for small sheets yeah but if you want to cut a slope out you actually need a large cutting length yeah and so woodland scenics hot wire is and then personally yeah when you're going into airbrushing as long as it's coming from a decent manufacturer with a name you're good yeah. if you've never heard of the manufacturer or it doesn't have a manufacturer's name on don't even touch it yeah i mean i i have the budget chinese one and i don't even run water through it anymore <laughs> 
Yeah. So, you know, whether it's Iowata, whether it's Badger, whether it's, uh, is it Heckenstein or is that? Uh, Hex and Steinbeck. It's something yeah, like that. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, and not Heckler and Kosh. They're different. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that work. Can you imagine? <laughs> They've got a sideline. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a serious airbrush if the, they uh they t- imagine the attachments <laughs> speaking of not touching stuff um uh we got a message in a uh, wookie gunner what's your fa- least favorite material to work with oh. technical and comedy there's two answers technical is resin yeah because resin's one of those things that you don't find out if you've screwed up until 24 hours after you've screwed up and there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it afterwards. Yep. Yeah, it really I can is. See that. It and then it's a pray to God. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a, a pour for my map build, yeah, and it was like this big map of fabled realms and I made it out of foam and everything, but I'd only got three, no, five mil, yeah, so I had to pull a three mil layer of resin, yeah, to form the ocean of this map. But the map was four foot across, which meant if one degree had been off, it had basically overflowed half the map and covered half my name tags up, yeah? And I was doing it in the studio, which means I had to go home, yeah, and leave it overnight where oh, I man. couldn't just check on it and adjust it. <laughs> resin settles up. Jesus, that was a rough night. So resin, technical, it's resin, yeah? That's the one where it's like, right, put your head on, do a test pour the day before, make sure the material's all right, make sure you've got your mixing quantities okay, make sure whichever acrylic paint or whatever you're using to stain it isn't going to have a weird reaction with the polyurethane resin, you know what I mean? And then figure out how much you need so you know you've got enough to actually pour it all, yeah, and all these sort of questions, and then, you know, go for it. Resin's uh, the one simply because fly. Anything else I can fix on the fly. Resin, it's like you screw that up and something goes wrong, you know, the whole piece can be ruined or you're looking at quite a challenge. So there's a lot. Of, also, typically, you don't put resin in until everything else is done. Yeah, so true. it's such a failure point. You know, it literally is the last thing you do on most builds that involve resin because you've done everything else. You know what I mean? So it's, it really is one of those things where fingers crossed, you know, sacrifice a, a bucket of PVA to the terrain gods. <laughs> you know, on a comedy aspect, my least favorite material is tiny uh, polystyrene balls. Yeah. Oh. I, you know, you know oh, the yeah. stuff that they use for filling bean bags? Yeah. yeah. I have a bag of that and I use it for bulking filler. So, what I do is if you get like that stuff and you throw, say, half of that, yeah, say another 40% watch it filler and then 10% what you call it, PVA. You can make this sort of like sludge, yeah? But the basic, the polystyrene beads are really lightweight, but they take up a lot of volume, which means you can literally stick it in places and fill gaps really quickly and easily. Literally shove it in, and then afterwards, because it, it's filler and PVA, you can brush it down and clean it up. Then afterwards, because it's it dries hard, it's only filler and polystyrene, you can sand it, you know? So it's a really good gap filler, yeah? But the balls are so light that, you know, I walk up to this bag, yeah? And it's like, I, it's like I'm in EOD, you know what I mean? I've got the full body armor on, you know, I've got the robot to me and I'm just making sure one sneeze, yeah, and I'm going to be Frosty the Snowman, yeah? I can, and you will I can, be finding them for three years after you've done it too. Yeah. 
I can so relate to that. Doing some work in my home, I was putting insulation in, polystyrene with aluminum facing, cutting it to fit into places. Fastest way to do it is a table saw. Have you ever seen what polystyrene polystyrene balls do when they're shredded by a table saw? Yeah. They go everywhere. I blew my nose, and guess what? It came out of my nose. I don't think I'm going to be able to find it. Yeah, but uh, this one time I got my lad to help me, and we'd stack up uh, white polystyrene sheets to make like a layered hill. Yeah, and then in the genius, whilst my wife was away with the, on a girls' weekend, yeah, we decided we were shaping it, and we used metal scourers to scrape the balls off it. Oh no! Yeah. And we did it in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> oh no yeah and i've got a photo on my facebook and I, i'm not going to be able to find it in time now i know i'm not yeah but it is my son i've literally sent the photo and i'm hoovering my son down yeah as he's covered <laughs> in, yeah, in white polystyrene balls <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> I, I can put, completely relate to that, mate. Yeah, but walking in to get my my sort of like fill out of this bag, you know, it's like don't breathe on it, don't knock it, because <laughs> all it takes is one little, and it's right, poof. Yeah, you know. I mean, the, the the only thing that could make it worse is using glitter in terrain. I'm just glad glitter oh. isn't a thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hobby herpes. Never goes away. Craft herpes, as it's often called. And it in my house. You can have any terrain with that, but you can't have glitter. No, definitely not. Um, On the listener questions one, um, Big Geordie Geek asked, uh, do you ever just shove a whole heap of books under a green sheet and play like we used to back in bands? Yeah. Yeah, I I play with cardboard boxes. I play with Coke cans on a table. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can literally play on anything. I mean, part of it is simply because quite often I'm that building, often building that many tutorials. I don't have a gaming set of my own terrain because it all goes out the door, you know, which is yeah. why I build my Burma build. So quite often when I get new games <laughs> and stuff like that, for a long time with how long it, it can actually take me to build a terrain set to play on, yeah, I'm actually playing on all sorts of weird bits and bobs, yeah? Yeah. It's often why I go to gaming cafes to play because they've already got a table and if I want to go to Warhammer World, yeah, and play on one of their tables and then build my own. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the other thing is I'm very I'm very narrative driven. I mean one of the reasons I like terrain is like I like involving myself in the game. I mean Play war games with me is very strange because I'll narrate the story as we as we play. Yeah. So, you know, when I play Kill Team Everyone's got a name, you know. I mean, it's like reading a 40k novel. I'm talking about, you know, you may say, right, I'm moving six inches, taking a shot at him. Yeah. For me, it's like Gunner's taking a dive, he jumps, pulls the trigger, hopes, roll the dice, shot goes wide, crashes to the ground. So I really involve myself in the game. So my imagination's great. I don't need a, lo- a wonderful looking terrain table to imagine that's an underhive. I can just do it. I can, yeah. you know, suspend disbelief. It's just that I really love making it actually look like it's an underhand. So, yeah, simple game playing and using what you've got then and there, no worries. You know, I'll play on the floor, you know. It's about gaming, and it doesn't matter what you use to game. It's about the game. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just 
I really like terrain and setting the scene because for me, my games are far more narrative driven. Yeah. And, and in my mind as well, which is why my terrain needs to look right and feel right. Yeah. For me personally. Yeah. Which is why, you know, I think that's why. I, I mean, I got into wargaming when I was about 15 with a load of mates. Yeah, but I was the one who went the terrain side. Yeah, and I was the one who built the terrain for all for all of us. Yeah, and that was I think that's quite common with terrain makers. They're they're the ones who like the landscapes, like actually building the scenes. Yeah, because most people will quite happily play with you know a few odds and sods thrown together. You know, I mean the amount of times we've gone into places and people haven't even painted their MDF. You know, they're quite happy with it as it is, and that's perfectly. I've done it. You know, that's yeah. how we game. But terrain makers do like setting the scene. I think there's a gene in like a storyteller, you know, and that's how we express it. You know, we build the landscape you play on. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't mind going, you know, really simple and easy. Yeah. But I do like beautiful terrain. Yeah. Yeah. Another question we have for one of our listeners, the mini boss, uh, he's wanted to make some uh, 3D debris fields from, for Drop Fleet, uh, but his time's limit, time is limited as well as his skill. So what's your thoughts on making, I mean, with Drop Fleet, we have the scattered terrain, but he's wanting to make the scattered terrain, but you got to put little ship template or tokens on it. What's your uh, tips on making flat versions or, or scattered terrain that's easily able to put other ships or, or units on top of that are going to be on a base of some sort? The key thing with that is warping, yeah? Because there's nothing put on top of the base, really, to brace it. If you build a base and you put a hill on it or a building on it or a hedge on it, it's actually bracing that which stops it warping, Yeah. So, first thing is to look down at your core material. And I'd often the card. That's quite sturdy enough. Yeah. Uh, it's also easy to cut out. The next thing is you want ground texture. So, you're looking at some sort of ground stucco. Yeah. So, paper mixed with ceiling stucco. Yeah. That's really good because ceiling stucco is designed not to shrink and crack, which also means it won't shrink and warp your base. Yeah. So you can just spatter that down. And after that, you can drop your tokens or whatever into that and it'll embed into them. And that'll give you a nice level, sturdy, non-warpable flat base that's really easy to paint up. And that can often be your, your first start. And then after that, it's dropping in what, it, what little gribblies you want to drop in to make it a little bit more detailed. I mean, if you want to do woodlands, you can do blacks, you know. You can drop in the, you know, a few cocktail sticks, put that into it. Yeah, paint them up, bit of upholstery foam soaked with green paint for for tree canopies. There's lots of little techniques, but if you're doing large flat templates, you've got to control the warp. So that means a sturdy base, and then so whatever you put on top of it, make sure that if it's PVA, it's very little. You know, it doesn't take much PVA to glue things down. So use as little as possible or go for a gloop or a medium like filler or something that doesn't shrink. Yeah. When it dries, because that way it'll stay flat because otherwise you'll end up with like scatter bases curved at the end and people come along and flick the end and send them spinning in a circle. Yeah. I'm guilty of that. I've done that. We've (laughs) all done that. That's where you, that's the first time you learn about warping. Wait, what? What's that? What? Oh, right. I, I learned about warping when I did my kitchen floor, unfortunately. Um, so, so here, here, here's a question that, because we all sit down on the hobby and you can't just sit there in dead silence because silence is boring. So Mel is sitting down to hobby for Mel. Let's, let's pretend that happens. What kind of music do you have going? Very rarely have music going. Yeah. Typically it's documentaries, it's Netflix. Yeah. It's something I can listen to and follow along. Uh, I tend to watch, I tend to have music playing 
when I have to think or write. So if I'm modeling, I often say I'm not really thinking. Yeah, I'm just going with it. Yeah. And so I'll have something that distracts my mind, which is words, film, series, documentary, audiobook. Yeah. Whereas if I'm trying to think, I am trying to figure out tutorials, you know, how am I going to structure this tutorial or how I'm going to design this cast? You know what I mean? Then quite often I have I have what's called my writing playlist, yeah, which came from the book, and that's Enya, you know, Eva Cassidy, you know, things like that, which are really sort of slow. They keep the album nice listening. and calm. A lot know. more mellow than what uh, Christopher Lee would listen to then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but yeah. Was hoping that Mel would just be like, you know, oh, I love good heavy, just. <laughs> no, no, I like that when I'm driving. Yeah, rock that all the time. When driving. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but when I'm when I'm when I'm generally thinking, then I I like my Enya. You know what I mean? You know, I I like slow sort of. I like classical music, but I'm really eclectic with my music tastes. You know, I like Hanson. You know what I mean? I like all sorts of different people. It, if a song comes along or a music comes along that catches me, it catches me, you know? So, you know, I, my playlist can go from Eva Cassidy, you know, and a simple switch because I like that song, you know, or, you know, back to Billy Joel, you know, over to rock, over to Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, wherever it goes. Nice. Um, how did you find the Kickstarter experience? Jeez. I mean, obviously, it wasn't just yeah. you that was born. It wasn't just you involved. But... <laughs> it aged me. It aged me. It was yeah. intense. It was amazing. Uh, I was completely underprepared in every single way for it. Yeah. Just the sheer amount of workload, the engagement, response, how well it did. The sheer amount of stuff you have to do, you know, it was just, I think it took me two weeks to recover from it, you know, to just start to feel normal. I mean, when you do a Kickstarter, especially like a Kickstarter that goes successful and gets big, it completely takes over your life. There is nothing else. You know, the idea of, oh, you know, I'm doing the school run, did it, and I've got this Kickstarter going on the side. No, every spare moment you possibly can is thrown at something at the Kickstarter. Because when you're doing a Kickstarter, you're not just trying to promote the Kickstarter and you're not trying to do everything you can to promote it, but you've got all sorts of stuff coming in at you to try and promote it and people wanting your time and, you know, and it doesn't matter how much time or how well prepared you are. Yeah, I mean, I had Dave helping with me and he'd already done one. Yeah. There's not enough hours to do everything, you know, every opportunity, everything that comes your way. I mean, I think I, during the Kickstarter, I got like 30 or 40 podcast invites just because of the Kickstarter, you know what I mean? And if you think about pretty much, you know, every 10th person who signs up on the Kickstarter drops you a personal message just out of the courtesy because they're being nice. That's 500 people. You know, yeah, got, true. You know what I mean? And, you know, you see it as just what, but in the, from my side, you know, every morning waking with an inbox full. A Kickstarter inbox full, you know, your name being mentioned on stuff like that, that, you, you know, I mean, in your notifications for your pay tagged all over the place and you don't know whether it's positive or I mean, in my case, it's overwhelmingly positive, but you've got to go check it out. You've got to leave a gauge and that sort of stuff. And then you've got all the questions that come in on your various social media assets and stuff like that, because if someone's got a question, they'll just use whichever platform or way they want to use to contact. Yeah, yeah. So and you that, this... that question will be asked fifty times, but oh, yeah, because yeah, they're yeah. all using yeah, different I mean. platforms. 
And you get pin post at the top of the group. Yeah, but you still end up going in and answering these yeah. questions. So, you know, and it, it's not a diss on people. It's just human nature. You know, we as humans, we're used to interacting with people like this, us and us four. We're sending messages backwards and forwards. But if you magnify the other side, you know, for me on this side, it became overwhelming. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was overwhelmingly positive. But there was just so many people to engage with at so many different levels, as well as thinking about, right, this thing's come out. Right, we've hit this Kickstarter. I've got to jump on. Next set of posts across the social. Broken this set stretch goal. Yeah. And anytime you go on and post something, you're generating responses. Now, yeah. that's good for a Kickstarter. But at the same time, if you're one person, yeah, the sheer overwhelmness on at the same time, I mean, during the start, I flew to America for the first time, went to Adepticon for the first time, flew back. Four days later, I was down filming Salute, which is the UK's biggest show. You know? And doing that during the Kickstarter, everyone wants a piece of you. Oh, yeah. Everyone wants oh, to interview yeah. you. Everyone wants to shake your hand. You know, everyone wants you to visit. And it's all good. I'm not dissing it. But as an actual experience, decompressing from that, it took me... Took me a week before I left the house. So when are you doing volume two then? Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> During that same period, I'm just I'm testing my memory now. Did you do a video interview with Beast of War or did you go there in person? No, I flew over just before the Kickstarter. I it was over. in person. I couldn't yeah, remember if it was in person or not. So that was the start of it. That was very much the start of it because that launched shortly afterwards. Went uh, We had a couple of weeks. Then it was Adepticon. Yeah, uh, then it was back to the A, then it was, then it was end of I mean, the irony was, yeah, I, I, I'd spent that much time flying and in bad back by the end of the Kickstarter, and I was walking around, hobbled over a hot bottle. So it took me about a week to also get over the physical effect of that much work and being in a chair for that long. And my mate, uh, what's called Jace? He came round and now the Kickstarter finished on a on a Sunday night, yeah, because we started it on a Sunday and it finished on a Sunday, yeah. And on the Monday he came round, a uh, week out, week Monday he came round and he sort of said, "Should we take?" It was summer. He said, "His daughter is friends with my. You haven't been out in a week. You need to get out now. You know you're up and about. Why don't we go up to town? Yeah, we'll go to the the dessert bar and we'll get the kids ice cream." And it was like, yeah, that's something simple. And I'm up for like, yeah, I'm off to go out. Yeah. So we, we we jumped in the car. We drove up to like the city centre, pulled up at Tesco's, you know, parked on the car park. Yeah. I walked three foot of our car park. I get stopped by a Kickstarter backer. <laughs> I'm not joking. Three, three steps off the car park. And someone goes, Bell? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I backed the Kickstarter. And it's just. Do you get that a lot? People recognizing yes. you? Yes. Uh, not so much these past couple of years because we've had lockdowns, you know, and people yeah. haven't been yeah. out. But prior to lockdown, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was worse is if you, if I go to any sort of hobby store or any sort of trade event, automatically I get recognised, yeah, and that's accepted. Generally, when I've been out and about, perhaps once a month, someone will recognise me just randomly, you know, where I'm at the shop at KFC or up in town or something. The worst one is I get a lot more of people thinking they recognise me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're just like... Yeah, you get a weird look. That you know weird I mean? look, and it's like, 
you're, you're kind of staring now. You see, in my <laughs> city, you're staring. that means something very specific. It normally means you're about to get... Yeah. And so, I, as I was getting used to the YouTube situation and being known, you know, it, it really started to bother me because I used to get weird looks when I was out. And it took me a while to actually figure out they recognised me. They're trying to... F was from. I was just yeah. walking through the supermarket thinking, hey, this guy, want, you know, is this going to be trouble? Because Stoke, where I live, is a pretty rough place. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's actually quite a rough city. You know, it's quite, it's the most working class city in Britain. It's one of the most debt ridden. It's one of the biggest drug issues and debt issues. So it's actually quite a rough place. Yeah. So when people look at you like that, it's generally not a good idea. And if they, think, if they come up to you, yeah, that generally doesn't mean something good. So quite often I get into this city looking at me and if they start to, I don't know if they want to fight or, you know, so yeah. that can get a bit weird. Uh, the other thing is, is the acceptance that it doesn't matter what time on a Sunday night it is, you must, because I did and I got recognised, yeah? Also, you can no longer tell your children off in public. <laughs> you know when you know when you're in a queue at KFC and they've been absent, yeah, and you're just about to and someone goes, Mal like, well, can I give you some advice about KFC Mel? Go on. Just don't eat there. I, I worked there. that was my first job. I worked there for two years cooking. Don't eat there. It's probably <laughs> worth noting that most of the rest of the world's KFCs are better than the US ones. Generally speaking, you know, our food standards in K uh, are pretty much stronger than the US's. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even it's the same over here. Incredible. I mean, w w when there's a, a allowable a limit of insects that can be found in breakfast cereal, actually, it's uh, incredibly low. We're quite strict on that sort of stuff. Well, it's, no, it's same here. You, you look at the number and you think like, oh, that's pretty low. But when you think about it, it's just like, yeah, but that means there's an allowable amount. <laughs> That's the manufacturing process for you, buddy. Yeah. So, Mel, I apologize. I wasn't part of the Kickstarter because I was actually deployed for a year. At I thought you might have been. So I wasn't able to... In the tent. You know, no. This is That's what I okay. Was, Me and uh, George have our books. I know you have your books. So I'll have to pick mine up off of Amazon or something. So I will be purchasing it here in the future. Yeah, Make sure you get them around all What's that? I mean, no George? doubt at some point we'll do book two. Yeah, but I'm getting back into the channel at the minute. You know, I'm getting back to my actually my passion, you know? That's good. So, so I, one last on. Go on, buddy. I was going to say one last question before we wrap this up because we've been we're getting a little long in the the tooth here. We'll we'll chat some more, but um, aging in the hobby. Most of us started off. Well, I, I started this is off. My fault. I put this on the list. Yeah, I actually I, put I, this on the list because I saw a video of somebody that's been fighting with um their eyes starting to go on them. Who's actually younger than I am. But it's just like, that's actually a good point. Um, I mean, like there, I it is something that we see in the... I see Terraniacs commenting on it occasionally in the group as well. But uh, have you come across anything like that, or do you have any general tips for people? Uh, I've noticed that watching my hands aren't as steady as they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my eyesight's still pretty good, to be perfectly honest, but I've always had really... Yeah, so I think that, you know, that one, it's going to be... It'll be a while before I need glasses. You know, obviously, you know, as people get older, you know, we're roughly... If you want to do scale yeah. modelling, you're going to have to look at correcting your eyesight at some point for scale modelling, you know. But what I have noticed is slightly a little bit more tremor. Yeah. I've noticed I'm bracing my hand a little bit and that stuff when I'm doing very fine stuff. Yeah. But that's the only thing I've noticed. Uh, 
I think with the hobby, these things are relatively easy to correct. I mean, obviously, if you've got Parkinson's, dementia, you know, you lose yeah. like that. Well, that's going to affect it, you know, more than anything, you know. And I think that's what I think my greatest fear is losing my eyesight because I couldn't hobby. You know, I couldn't yeah. build brain that sort. I could still function, no doubt. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I can. I can dry brush with a shaky hand just as well as I can dry brush. Actually, probably dry brushing with a shaky hand might look better. Yeah, to be truthful, it's fine and detailing. So I was thinking on, the, on the, this question on a different side of it where, okay, yeah, we're getting old, we're falling apart, we, you know, we have to get up in the middle of the night to, to you know use the loo. I was talking more of thinking like, you know, when I go to my local gaming store, that's like, oh, that's George, the old guy, because everyone else is in their 20s. And, you know, they're asking, like, you know, what I've learned. Like, you know, how how important do you feel is the position you're in to, I'll just say it, to vomit the information into the minds of the young people so that, you know, what you've learned doesn't get lost like... You know, if you look at other trades and crafts, you know, we don't know how to do them anymore because no one paid attention yeah. and the art got lost. Uh, I think it's not too hard for me, but that goes back to the premise of that's where I started the channel to do, to share my passion, to share my techniques. And it literally is what I do. It's what I've done for seven years now. You know what I mean? So meeting people, meet, yeah. Secondly, I think, what do you call it? Uh... I think people like it when you've been in the hobby for a long time and you're sharing the stuff. The old wise man of the hobby. I mean, I did this thing where I shaved my, yeah, a grey sort of goatee, yeah? And I shaved it off and looked younger. And people said, you don't look old enough to be our tutor. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, cheers, thanks. I'm not sure if it's a compliment or, you know what I mean? But, you know, that that learning, you know, from sort of the older person, I think it's a, it comes easier when people see me the first thing they think is terrain tutor i'm automatically cast in the old wise man who's sharing the tips who's done this had you know because i share my mistakes and i'm honest about fixing them you know it is very much like you know i've lived a life of terrain making you know hear my life story and people are quite happy to sit down yeah hear what i say you know so i don't i get treated rather well secondly yeah because I have so many subscribers and, you know, I am this person in the industry. People treat me like that anyway. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm treated like a celebrity when I go in. Treated, you know, it takes. It took a while, you know what I mean? Because like I say, I'm just like everyone else as far as I'm concerned. It's just I do my hobby in front of the camera. Yeah. But people do perceive me differently. And so they generally yeah. put me in this old wise man of terrain. You know, hey, Mal, what do we do about this? Hey, Mal, what about this? I can kind of relate to that a little bit. We, this this is our first podcast. We we did another one um, with the Drop Fleet group, and I remember this one post in particular that made me like, oh, oh, hey, that's a uh, that's cool. This guy was like sitting down, you know, like I'm building stuff, you know, and he's got his phone there with the headphones, and on his screen is a thumbnail of our podcast, and it's like, oh, you're listening to us while you're hobbing. Okay. You know, yeah, I, I I could totally get that. It's so Mate. not that we're any not that we're anywhere near as big as you were, but I've had that once or twice where people have recognised me, and I've been like, it might be because of that, but I have no idea who you are, so it can't be because of real life. Oh, it gets all <laughs> weird for me. I visited Warwick Castle. Very unusual for me. A couple of summers ago, yeah, 
and we're sitting in the middle of the hedge maze looking up at the castle and someone just out, out from across a hedge comes are you going to build it mel <laughs> <laughs> i mean this hedge what it you just can't go you just can't go anywhere though yeah i mean generally with the amount of subscribers i've got and the relatively small population yeah. of the uk you know compared to the us Generally, I can guarantee that, you know, if I meet a group of people, someone's going to recognize me at some point, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I went airsoft zombie killing on like a zombie killing experience day. One of the zombies came up and asked me for a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> that you might know. be the best version of that story I've ever heard, I think. But you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it, it's, it's a weird position to be put be put in it i mean the kids have got used to it more now you know they're they're just as comfortable that dad being called out you know by a random stranger in a street and having to stop while dad takes a photo was you know what i mean yeah. i mean my daughter my daughter found out that secretly yeah one of the teachers was a fan of my channel when she caught the primary school teacher watching one of my videos lunch hour yeah. apparently the teacher was guilty as you know really like oh i've been caught yeah i was watching as hell at the next parents evening you know what i mean but it's like you know my, my kids find it a bit interesting because they don't even know if they you know when they go to when they get new teachers and stuff like this yeah and it can be quite weird so it's it's not normal, but it's not bad. Yeah. Well, Mel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I I can't believe the, the the suddenness of you. know, Thursday, you're like, yeah, I'd get on there. Like, okay, well, this is kind of when we do it. Everything. Like, yeah, I can make it Saturday. Okay, so um, it made my run sheet so much easier. Yeah, I had to do say. no work at all. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, people. People, people who know you are, can't talk. People who know who you are, they know where you find you. But where can they find you? You know, what's your stuff? Dead easy. Look me up on YouTube. I'm the Terrain Tutor. All one word. Just put Terrain Tutor in anything, and you will find my ugly. Now, guys, before we wind up, yeah, uh, I want to do a shout out for a charity because that's one of the things that I'm doing. I want to give a shout out for Heroes. It's a charity based. Gone. Start that again, Mel. Your, your mic was cutting in and out. Oh, sorry. Right, I want to do a shout-out for a charity that I'm an ambassador and stakeholder in. It's called Models for Heroes. And basically what they do is they take donated models, FX kits, uh, 40K, anything like that, and then they send them to veterans and to bonders as a way of dealing with stress and mental health issues through models. Yeah, they also do group modeling sections for, for what you call it. So generally, every time I get a shout-out to an audience, I always bring guys up because we've all got plastic crack mountains and models we're never going to paint. And this yep. is generally a way of picking up your grey knight, sending them off to these guys over at Model Heroes and letting them send them, you know, demons on different battlefields. But, you know, no, people. So, do me a favor. Email yeah. email all that information so that we can get that in the show notes, the links, yeah, everything. I'll it off, I'll, I'll it's three o'clock in the morning here. So, is the the logo looks like a heart on a sprue? Yeah, heart on a sprue. Okay, I found it. Yeah. That's the guy. Okay. Run by run by Malcolm Childs. Absolute brilliant guy. But they do loads of stuff. You know, they and they do it all for free. Yeah, so they send the clippers, the glue, the files, the paints, the model kit out. You get the whole. 
and it's all coming yeah and basically it's sharing a hobby now the thing why i'm raising they get a lot, but they get a lot of requests for war gaming stuff off people who are interested in fantasy stuff like that yeah and they've got a bit of a shortfall so if you've got a spare model and you don't mind sticking it in the post yeah it's a good way of helping out a veteran practically it's not throwing yeah. some money into you know some charity that may get spent on admin fees what you send will be passed to someone who it will help and they will build the plastic you don't so if you've got it please check out yeah no i like that that's a great idea yeah. Yeah. all righty mel thank you so much um you you have more subscribers than we have plays views everything combined <laughs> so, so having one is it was a huge honor i i know you're just talking about how weird it is but it, oh, it's, it's been a joy it's having you on subscribers. I, I i was i was there once yeah it doesn't matter how many subscribers about the quality of the chat and gentlemen it's been a brilliant night tonight thank you very much and with that being said thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you for listening to getting table music used in this podcast was created by eric mataris at soundimage.org Bruce, say your thing.